and welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancato, and myself, George Shaft, where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic and just seeing what happens. It's going to be a more laid back approach to the MI Cynic standard episodes. And it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes, on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. Welcome aboard, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Today, I've picked out uh, an interesting subject, and it's because our first our first podcast was on the, the Jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee. And um, so I thought now that we are officially at the end of Pride, or at least at the end of London's Pride, um, that we'll do an episode, a podcast on LGBT uh, issues towards the the end of of Pride Month. So, I was I was happy enough to actually go yesterday because I was in I was in London, and you couldn't really you couldn't really escape it, George, because I think it was something like a million people, and that went down to to Pride, but it was probably more than that. That was just sort of a rough ballpark estimate. One million people. Getting anywhere around town was difficult because it, it spread from from Trafalgar Square all the way up to all the way up to Soho, like Dean's Street, probably beyond that too. Um, and it was they closed off streets, um, but other than that, it was a very happy and festive atmosphere. Um, no problems reported that I'm aware of, which was really good. And it was an important one because not only was it the first Pride after the last two had been cancelled because of um, COVID-19. But also, it's the 50th anniversary. So for 50 years, effectively, um, or rather 50 years ago, was the, was the first Pride in London. Yeah. So you think that's why so many people showed up for it? That's no. To totally celebrate the anniversary? Well, I mean, yes. I don't know if... You know, I don't think there would have been less people if it was the 49th or the 51st. I think it's it's definitely a major event. Um, you know, it's on the weekend. The weather's nice. It's summertime. There's a lot of reasons to go. If you are an LGBT person, obviously that uh, incentive is, is much greater um, for a variety of factors. Some might be more pulled in towards, let's say... Um, uh, the the right the protest aspect the marching aspect um, you know they might have their uh, workplace there or their their sports body or whatever it is that is taking taking a let's say a stand or or whatever it is but then a lot of people I think LGBT or not would have been drawn to it because it does have a sort of a carnival esque quality to it um, you know there's there's a lot of food and drinking going on and it's nice weather. And, you know, as if you needed another excuse to go down to London over the weekend, um, Pride is just a, a massive a sort of outdoor fun party full of people. Uh, and I mean, full of people. I could barely walk. It was it was that chalk full of people. Uh, That's usually why I show up to uh, events like Pride. I'm usually bribed with free food and a party. Have you been to Pride yourself, George? I have been to Pride before. Uh, when when I was in university, 
in Canterbury. Uh, there'd be Pride there every year. And I would make a point of going to the Pride event. Right, because it's, I suppose every kind of city or, or even town has its own Pride thing on different dates to make it a bit more confusing. Of course. Um, You've but- got, to, got, to have, got to get that. That tourism in there. And you know? by the way, it's international because um, I know Toronto has one and many other places in the US, like New York for sure has one, um, LA, you know, all the big cities. And if not even nowadays, I'd say even probably the smaller towns, June slash July have just become international sort of pride months. Although funny enough, I think it's the other way around in the Southern Hemisphere because it's almost as if uh, gay people everywhere have decided that it must be in summer at all costs. <laughs> so, and because the Southern Hemisphere is obviously, um, you know, the, um, the seasons are inverse to ours. I think they do it sometime in like November or if I'm not mistaken, down in, in places like Argentina, Australia, etc. I suppose that's one of those points where you also have to question what you mean by Southern Hemisphere. Because my first thought when you said that was to think of a place like Saudi Arabia, where the mood is very much, no, there is no Pride Month. Take part in something like that and the authorities land you in trouble. I find that a really interesting point. And I'm glad you mentioned it, George, because um, it's actually one of the things I wanted to talk about today. Because on the one hand... You know, these pride events that are happening in, let's say, the Western cities or the North or whatever you want to call it, London, Luxembourg, Paris, all of the, you know, the big famous cities of the West and smaller towns. And by and large, they're happening without a hitch for both LGBT and non-LGBT people. Um, and it's it's really Quite, although there's a protest aspect of it, I would argue that by and large, it's just a it's just a fun thing to do, even if you're not particularly bothered or knowledgeable of all the issues involved with discrimination and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You don't really have to, you know, it's not a prerequisite. Nobody's going to be at the gate there saying, "Sorry, sir, um, you know, if you if you don't know five gay songwriters or you know civil advocates, you can't get in here." No, it's quite the opposite. It's bring the kids, bring the dog, drink on the street. Uh, you know, peace and love. It's it very much encapsulates a, a, a very positive, almost hippie vision of everybody getting along. And by and large, they've been happening without a hitch, um, you know, without violence, and everything's fine and great, and it's just a fun day out. But they're not happening internationally. Uh, you've mentioned Saudi Arabia. Certainly, there's no pride happening there and in many other places in the world. And that might have to do with this this global divide on homosexuality that we're seeing across the world. Whereas it's increasingly being seen as a non-issue or uh, or being accepted by uh, the majority of people in countries like Canada, uh, where 80% of people um, think society should accept homosexuality, or the US at 60, or Spain at 88, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, it's not so much the same in other parts in the, of the world. In many ways, you could almost define it as a marker, if you will, of what is the difference between the the West and the rest. Mm. Because you think you know, Western nations in general, like the US, like Canada, you know, like Western Europe, it's not even a, contra- a controversy anymore. 
gay people exist and we like them and they're not you know, persecuted or as persecuted, depending on how you look at it. But if you're a country, a country that's defining itself geopolitically or you know, economically as being anti-West in some aspects or just not being of the West, it is, you know, it is very true that in a lot of these places, not only are they fiercely persecuted, but in recent years have been facing ever more persecution. Mm. Yes, and it's interesting. You know, I, I wonder where that division is stemming from. Is it, has it become a sticking point between countries that define themselves as non-Western and so they have a stake in it, so to speak? Or is it coming from more religious lines? Because one of the interesting things you'll know is that if you go through the Pew Research uh, charts, they've, they've listed down the charts of the regions of the world and um, let's say the the question being asked, should society accept homosexuality? This is on the Global Divide of Homosexuality, an article written in 2013. But I would imagine the, the numbers haven't really changed that much. But if you if you notice, for example, there is there's some discrepancy or there's little discrepancy when you do an intersection between a country's predominant religion and its view on, on homosexuality. So you'll notice that in a lot of the Christian countries, there seems to be a more laid back attitude or a more accepting attitude towards homosexuality, um, with an outlier here being Russia and Poland or Eastern Europe, let's say in general. Um, But when you get to Africa and the Middle East, which are probably by far the most the least tolerant countries in as far as homosexuality goes, um, then we're talking about countries that are not predominantly Christian. And I wonder if there is sort of this, a hidden correlation there that I haven't heard much talk about. I would be sceptical of that one because sub-Saharan Africa, uh, many nations there are majority Christian, and yet they are some of the fiercest persecutors in the world Mm. of homosexuals. Mm. So, you know, Uganda is the one that springs to mind because that one's had some very high profile cases where they've gone after people. And that one's... Laws, right? If I'm not mistaken, in Uganda and other such countries. Um, I mean, you can get the incarceration uh, immediately if you're you're caught sort of in the act. Um, Because the the other question there is, you know, how how do you prove it? You go back to how it was in the UK for for a long time before the, the sodomy laws were repealed, um, quite recently, actually. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons why they weren't often practiced in courts of law is that it's quite difficult to, to prove it, you know, because... I mean, you have famous cases like Oscar Wilde, who um, kind of flaunted it, so to speak, uh, or were not ashamed of it, or went into a court and, and actually admitted it, or whatever it is. But those were the rather few. In most cases, and you know, it begs the question for Uganda today: is how, how on earth do you, you know, do you prove um, this person had sexual relations with this other person? The the answer in truth is, you want to call. Is I want to say it's unenforceable, but then that's not the point of it. A lot of these laws come about more as a statement of 
you know, we want to punish people who do this end of story. You don't really need many prosecutions per year in order to prove the point. I mean, you think, you know, the British sodomy laws, for example, which were repealed in the 1950s, uh, there's a handful of very high-profile cases. Oscar Wilde, as you mentioned, Alan Turing is another one. Mm. Uh, but then when you look at the stats per year, it really wasn't many people being arrested for it. It's just more the chilling effect. It's, we have a law here that says this is illegal, don't do it or else. Right. And most people are going to be too afraid to go against it. And it serves a sort of, I guess it also serves as a discriminatory it sets a discriminatory boundary for society. And it says, you know, effectively, it's okay to be derog- derogatory and discriminatory and hateful towards these people. I mean, I, th- I think that's the most powerful. Yes, of- because it's endorsed by the government. Exactly. And it somehow says, you know, these people are not legally valid and, you know, they're not worth the same as other people. And this kind of action should be, um, you know, well, that's classic homophobia, right? That from that from a top-down perspective, let's say. Um, Very much so. And I think, and it's a big problem for Africa. You know, I'd hate to think of of growing up as an LGBT person in in Africa, Middle East, and even many parts of Asia. One of the things that has always struck me as bizarre is, you know, why do these parts of the world view homosexuality and LGBT rights issues as essentially Western problems or, or, or somehow associated it with the Western world, when you could quite easily make the argument, I mean, the self-evidential argument that homosexuality has been around, um, you know, before the West was even explored. The truth is, that one's a question with multiple answers to it, and it's quite multifaceted, because there's a complicating factor here, which is that a good many countries have laws on the statute books against LGBT people that were written by colonizing empires. Uh, For example, uh, famously, India had a law against LGBT people for decades, and it was written by the British when they were taking charge. So, So there's an argument there that it could have been introduced in some places, certainly, it was introduced by the West, and then the West changed before they got round to it. Another answer you can think of is because it's the opposite, really. You know, there's a very strong ten- contrarian tendency in humanity to look and if you see one group is doing something, to try and want to do something else. Well, that, so that would make more sense if it wasn't also the case that the group that's liberalizing LGBT rights is also the group that's liberalized, liberalized rights for many other groups. And the standard of life is consistently higher and they're desirable places, even for the people in, in these parts of the world. I mean, Africa and the Middle East are, are by and large great sources of migration that come into Europe and North America. So, you know, I don't know how it holds stick. It's sort of like saying, well, you know, we like all the good things about, uh, England and France and America and Japan and whatever, wherever it is, um, without making the correlation that yes, but 
we have these good things in the West. We have job security, health security, financial security, uh, democratic security, right security, all of the nice things about 21st century life, you know, precisely because we've, we've all agreed that human rights are universal and that democracy has a mission or an obligation, a duty, whatever you want to call it, to to expand its its pool of rights for people, to empower people. That's what it's that's what it's all based on. And so I find that interesting that it, it that argument seems to we seem to have failed in the West to export uh, the foundation of, of that argument. It's because again, if you are because it's coming from one part of the world, if you will. You know, you're going to you think of Western nations, you think of you know, the United States, Western Europe, countries which, frankly, you know, until quite recently, were very white and very much had a, a common set of ideas. And you can argue what they are all day long, but a general sense of all being one group that is doing this. And if you're someone who isn't in that group and yet still want to you know, be proud of who you are and uh, you know, differentiate yourself. That's an easy target right there. It's going, you know, tar- going after a small minority that the religious books from a thousand years ago all condemn anyway. Mm. And yeah, well, and I think that's a big part of it because, it, you know, I do agree with you, George, that um, a lot of it has to do with the colonial era of the Western European empires that brought a lot of these laws, like you mentioned, India. So that's that's quite a clear-cut case. But I, I would also add that there's a lot of, you know, authentic and organic um, Middle Eastern and specifically, uh, let's say, Islamic element to the to the homophobia. Now, uh, you know, I'm not sure what part of the Quran or what part of the interpretation of the Quran has to do specifically with uh, LGBT, let's say, um, dispositions, but. If you look, for example, with the they've made a new Buzz Lightyear film uh, recently, uh, in, and I'm reading an article here from June uh, of this year, which you know just a, just a few days before the film was released, um, there was already a, a, a 14 countries that have banned the film from being shown altogether, and the reason being that this Disney. Pixar film had, I believe, uh, one scene where there was a, a lesbian kiss. And now I haven't seen the film, so I don't know what kind of what context that kiss was in. It's a children's film, so I imagine it wasn't, you know, it, it would have been a, a very PG right parental guidance uh, kiss the, the the thing you might expect that during the normal toy story films in which you know the parents at the end of the film kiss and the kids happy and the dog wags his tail and you know it's a non it's a non issue but the minute you have got two women who might be two parents i don't know um kissing in the film no matter how uh, unsexual it is in nature you're going to have a problem and 14 countries had this problem and they've banned the film outright. Um, and really interesting thing, the entire 14 countries that I've got uh, here in front of me between the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Lebanon, Oman, Oman Qatar, Kuwait and Bahrain, 
all of them are Islamic uh, countries or or Islamic um, have sizable Islamic communities. And so, you know, just based on that fact, but also you can throw in um, recently the case in Saudi Arabia where the authorities have seized rainbow toys in crackdown of homosexuality. Toys. Uh, yeah, and it's quite a ridiculous thing, George, yeah. and for anybody listening to us today, um, there's a video of it somewhere on the internet where you have, a, you know, something that looks like straight out of 1984, but with a comical angle to it, because you've got these Saudi sort of officials and policemen hunting down piles of rainbow-colored stuff, you know, like or just toys and trinkets and bubbles and and it's just so hilarious right it's it's so clearly strange. a threat against you know, the, banning, the king you're buying, banning a rainbow which is a naturally occur- occurring phenomenon of course yes it's also the pride flag the lgbt flag but beyond that you know it's a, it's a bloody rainbow it, they happen everywhere <laughs> and you've got these policemen you know like putting them in bags and taking them away you know for influencing the children to be god awfully gay or whatever as if you know like a rainbow pony toy is going to suddenly make your child gay. But hey, um, I think a lot of it is ignorance. Yes, a lot of it is people not understanding um, that, you know, people are born gay or, or or maybe perhaps behaviorally it happens very young. But either way, you don't make somebody gay by a Disney Pixar film or having an LGBT colored dinosaur like it doesn't happen that way and the fact that national governments are making laws based around this and banning stuff based around this is really it's really spine tingling because it it just shows that the level of ignorance and and complete stupidity if you don't mind me saying so sorry not sorry um for governments you know and in this case it's, it's obviously something that really irks me um but you know, for me and off the cuff here, it's it's a very it's a very clear sign of ignorance. But you know, that's politics. The politics is is dealing with ignorance, and uh, you know, in the West we have this legacy of colonialism, which which implies this added. You know, we can't touch it with a stick. We cannot possibly ever, God forbid, us lecture anybody on anything. And yet, for me, here's a very clear case in which we actually can and should lecture other countries, more religious countries, uh, on actually, do you know what? You're not going to make your child gay by having a Disney dinosaur that's rainbow colored, you know? And if he is gay, your child, that's fine too. Because, you know, know, maybe your religion isn't so great if it's, you know, systematically discriminating against people. Like, sorry, you know, why, why do we fear so much? going there it's a tricky one because you know being at the end of lg of uh, pride month there's going to be the opportune time for them to point out that we're not always quite so consistent as we might like to present to be on that uh it comes like clockwork at the end of june uh the beginning of june every company jake redesigns their logo to be a pride version Bethesda was one that got a lot of hot water for it this year because they they redesigned their logo to be you know, a pride version for the United States, Europe, Australia, but not for the middle for their Middle East Twitter account. And as soon as July first came round, the pride logo went down, and it was the regular logo yet again on their Twitter. You know, it's 
obviously a, just a performative, oh, you know, almost like genuflecting. Yes, uh, let let the you know let the homosexuals you know enjoy their month, whatever, and we're going to show our show you know our kind of commitment in the places where it's convenient for us. And then when and then when it's over, we just revert back to business as usual, you know, not improving anyone's lives in, or in any way. And I would argue, George, that actually it's not that they're reverting back to anything. I mean, corporations are corporations. I don't know at which point they were welcomed into the sort of pride fold. I would argue that was a, you know, they should never have been let in because they're not, you know, companies don't have values, no matter how many times they like to repeat it. Companies make money. And if they see that the Western world is by and large supportive of LGBT rights and they think they've got, you know, bonus cookie points to gain by doing so, they'll do it. But as you've just, you know, demonstrated, when it's not salient and when it's not convenient and when they're in another market, then it's pursed lips. And it just goes to show, you know, the two-faced nature. But I don't think this is striking per se. I mean, what else can we really expect? In many ways, it is actually quite a striking one. Because, of course, capitalism as an ideology is widely associated with the West. It was the part of the world that during the Cold War was, you know, vigorously advocating for capitalism, you know, in the, on the world stage. And yet, you know, the corporation often seen as, you know, the, the apex, the, you know, the biggest, most visible sign of capitalism is on this other issue that is also largely associated with the West, so visibly and demonstrably two-faced or not caring about it. It's an easy, it makes it very easy for people to point and claim hypocrisy, which is also very convenient because then when you're arguing about hypocrisy, you're not arguing about the fact that 14 countries banned a movie because it had a gay couple kissing in it. And I think hypocrisy is actually a good charge that can be levied against pride in general, because, and here's my main point of critique, um, that as much as I enjoyed going to London Pride uh, a few days ago, and as much as I, you know, I agree with its overarching aims and ambitions and what it's trying to do and, and what it has done, which is remarkable, um, I think it's not digging its nose enough into the countries that need rights the most. It's sort of become this echo chamber in the West, this pat in its own back. Look at how far we've come and look at how great it is. And doesn't everybody want to come live here in London? And, you know, aren't we also happy? Great. Um, because by and large, we, you know, we've won these rights already. Uh, within the LGBT community, stuff like uh, gay marriage and uh, anti-discrimination laws and you name it, it's there or it will be soon. Legally speaking, the, the fight has, has largely already been won and we are now in the, in the post-discrimination era uh, for a lot of people, in, especially in the cities. Maybe not so much in rural areas and towns, there's a lot more work to do there. Um, but in the big cities, Manchester, London, Birmingham, and, uh, and across Europe, it's better than it's ever been before. And, you know, in many places, you're more likely to be bullied on account of other things, uh, other, um, let's say, disabilities or um, social economic class or whatever it is. So I'd say by and large, you, you know, the, the struggle and the fight shouldn't be so much focused on 
our domestic laws, uh, but rather it should be seen internationally. And I'm speaking here as a, as a European or as a British person, because I think in, in the US now with what we've discussed um, on our last podcast, George, with with abortion, there's, there's rightly, there's many minds that are wondering, well, um, you know, is gay marriage going to be next? Because that was also a Supreme Court sort of uh, decision or overreach, according to, you know, how you see it. So that's, that is up for debate. And perhaps pride has another significance over there. But having said that, here in the UK, and perhaps in many other countries in Europe, I do see it as self-congratulatory. And there's not a lot of questions being asked about how it might be like to grow up as an LGBT person in uh, one of the countries that is still remarkably uh, homophobic and and written into the the law. You could also point out, and I'm going to ask you about how you feel about this, but there's been a movement to expand pride towards securing rights for more groups. Uh, Trans rights, for example, has been one that's come up over the past couple of years. Uh, Do you think that Pride should make a point of expanding trans rights then in the West as well? I I think it's inevitable. You know, it's like I'm not, you know, I might have my opinion on it. Ultimately, uh, you know, I can't possibly hope to uh, represent or reflect or or even try and understand the the majority view, you know, and and ultimately it, it shouldn't be just, an LGBT view, right? Because we, we live in a big society and, and we can't discard the opinions and comments of people like JK Rowling as much as, uh, you know, she might offend people because uh, that's not the way forward. You know, that creates a, a, a sort of an elite a- academia a magistrate of those entitled to speak. I don't think that's worked out well for Black Lives Matter, and I don't see that working out well for trans lives matter or or, and trans institutions. So it has to be a debate that we move forward all together. Having said that, my you know, my humble personal hot take on it is that it's inevitable that trans issues are going to be lumped together with LGBT issues because they are a part of the LGBT community and and I do think they have very legitimate concerns. Having said that, the UK is is in a bit of a funny position because we're not topping the charts when it comes to um, rights for transsexual uh, and non-binary and intersex peoples. Um, in fact, we're, we're quite sort of below on that on on the list of the most progressive countries in as far as uh, discrimination laws and such. In fact, I was reading on the news that the government is now planning or has already planned uh, or is due to introduce soon, uh, the audience will Google it for me, uh, new new planning laws that require all government buildings uh, of a certain size to be forced to have single-sex lavatories, so toiletry facilities. So there's been some commotion as this is one of the big sort of asks or demands from the, from the trans um, uh, advocacy groups that they want uh, bathrooms. So they feel as if bathrooms and toilets should be multi-sex or should not be gendered. Uh, and they argue that this is uh, to improve the safety and comfortability, dignity and respect of trans peoples. And so places like the Old Vic Theatre in London did actually move towards this by having 
by doubling the amount of lavatories that they had, but at the same time getting rid of, getting rid of the gender labels on them, such as male, female, men, woman, or however you divide them, and instead putting a picture of a cubicle or a urinal. Uh, and they were one of the first theatres to do that. But now the government's come out saying, well, if it's going to be a government building, and most likely, by the way, this is now they're probably going to extend towards residential and private buildings in the future, is, no, you have to have bathrooms that are male and female. Um, and only females can go in one and only males can go in the other. So it seems as if basically the, the long-winded response that I'm having here, George, is that it seems to me... I might be wrong, but it seems to me that British society, um, or at the very least British government, it feels as if Britain is not ready or does not want to or does not agree with uh, the more progressive uh, side of trans advocacy. Mm-hmm. Our position perhaps is that LG, LGBT, so gay pride is fine in London, but uh, you know the weightier tra- trans demands, Britain is not ready for. This is what the government is saying. I would caution against, you know, just sitting and hand waving going, oh, it's inevitable, because every step of every right that's ever been won was fought for in some capacity. However, the the second point I would uh, sort of like to, how should I put this, argue is basically, uh, do you think that pride should maybe put more of an emphasis you know, you could you could say, okay, have the parade. You know, it's pride. Celebrate rights that have been won for gay people. But now we also want to expand those rights to trans people as well. And you know, for example, with the bathrooms, stop. You know, the gender discrimination and scandals that come from that. Do you believe that that's a prerogative for well, yes, pride? Yes, I do, because you know the the main. The, the primary reason that pride is there is that every human being should be dignified and should have rights, especially on masses which they did not choose, but what, what they are fundamentally and essentially. And so I think that's an important thing. And, and trans people are, uh, you could easily argue, uh, are part and parcel of this group because, you know, we're talking about people who... Um, have most likely have had a, a difficult upbringing in, in just being whatever they authentically feel is themselves. And and I do genuinely believe this because I have met people in my life who um, who who I felt intuitively and, and in a very deep, at a very deep level that um, they really did not, you know, they in the deepest sense of their, their identity, the, you know, the, the deepest part of them did not correlate with, with the body that they were given. Uh, born into. Now, you, you could also make the argument, and sometimes I dabble into these these sort of intellectual thoughts that you think, well, you know, in a perfect world, you know, would it matter? You know, why do we put such emphasis on what genital you're born with? You know, it doesn't matter because, um, you know, I'd like to live in a world that, you know, you can have any genitals you'd like uh, that you were born with. It's inconsequential that it's just, um, you know, a reproductive organ, or if you don't want it to be that, it, it's literally just body fluids being expelled. Um, other than that, you are free and you are even welcome to be whoever you want to be, speak however you want to speak, feel however you want to speak, and not care so much about whether something is masculine or feminine. You know, perhaps these are concepts that uh, in the future we need to eliminate as well. You know, who cares, masculine or feminine? You know, just... 
um, your thoughts matter more, your personality, your creativity, what you bring to the world. But, you know, that's very idealistic. At the end of the day, we live in a gendered world, and it's very easy to see how, especially as children hit puberty, um, the weight of the social society's demands as to what role you're going to take. Are you going to be more masculine and more, or are you going to be more feminine? This is very, it's life altering for all of us as we go through puberty, this question of our, our sexual identity. So I do understand that, uh, you know, we're not at this futuristic level of, uh, you know, that we're all, that we're all one gender yet. Uh, trans people need to be as protected uh, as possible and allowed to be themselves. Having said that, George, I d- so it, the, the, the short answer is yes, I do think trans issues uh, should be included in pride issues generally and LGBT issues generally because it's, it's, they, they share the same outlook towards life and they share the same moral preoccupations. Having said yeah. that, I do, here's where my view is complicated a little bit more because when it comes to rights, as a libertarian myself, uh, I tend to, I view the best government as the most limited government and that people should have their rights, not necessarily granted by government. Government's role should be to stay away from people as much as possible and mm. to not limit their lives as much as possible. But where it should be and where it must be a part of our lives is on the opposite end of that, in the state's duty to protect people. So it's all well and fine to be talking about rights. Rights are great, but there's also obligations. And the government should exist in order to fulfill that part of the contract, our obligations towards others. And when we step out of line, when we harm another person, that's when the government must be there. And this is where it gets, to me, a little complicated when it comes to trans rights, because some of the more, some elements within the trans community would be arguing for, for example, a liberalization or, or granting rights to a degree that we could also be talking about, unfortunately, the, the harming of children. And, and this is where hmm. I'm not completely swayed. Okay. What, what is it about the, that argument that you're not swayed by? Well, for example, the government right now uh, is looking into... So one of the issues is, is gender reassignment um, surgery. And so obviously you can imagine why this is such an important matter for the trans community, because in, in many ways it's, it is seen and will continue to be seen as a rite of passage. And for many people at an individual level, it is uh, the completion, the fulfillment of a transformation uh, from one gender to another. There has to be a sort of a physical component to it. And I understand that. And I think as adults, that is everyone's prerogative. You know, I strongly believe that it's your body, your rights, and do whatever you want. Um, I don't care. You know, as long as you don't come and tell me what to do, then you you can do as whatever you'd like and call yourself whatever you'd like. I strongly believe in that. And I'm guessing that what your stance is that you do not believe that extends to children. I think it's complicated, George, because when we're talking about minors and, you know, I remember being that age, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, even perhaps 16, although it's, it starts to wane off as, as we get closer to adulthood. Um, but when you're in those younger years of, of teenage years, you know, when you've just become a teenager, your body is uh, a cacophony of, of hormones and, and emotions and passions and confusions, your brain's not fully developed yet, 
the world is a complicated place. There's so much pressure in, in schools and peer pressure and yada, yada, yada. That I think it's, it's, it's a massive burden. And it, perhaps it's too big of a question with too big ramifications for someone that may not be fully able to take that decision for themselves. And so this is where I worry that the more we push for rights, um, let's say to, to do uh, potentially life altering surgery that cannot be reversed or fully reversed, um, that we need to be careful to exclude children, in my opinion, from that, because, you know, on, on the one hand, you'll have people, you know, if we don't, then we are potentially pushing people towards suicide. But I think here's where there's a careful juggling act and where it's where the state needs to take do its research and take it seriously. Because, yes, while it's admittable and, and of course, unfortunate that by prohibiting this type of surgery, uh, some people might be pushed towards suicide. Some young people might be pushed towards suicide. Although there, I would argue, the problem is not so much the surgery, but rather the discrimination that's happening in schools. So perhaps, you know, the, the, the arguments are entirely right. But And then on the other hand, if you allow this willy-nilly without so much as parental consent, which is, I'm hearing what it's like in, in a lot of places, I'm not sure if in, in the UK, but in, in other countries, yes. Then you're asking very young people, you're putting a lot of power in the hands of people that are not fully able to, to process the, the enormity of that decision and then potentially regret it. All right. So there's going to be two main arguments to throw out there against that. The first one is going to be the, f- the simple fact that generally regrets uh, with regards to gender reassignment surgery is exceptionally low. I remember looking at the, the statistics and it was genuinely around 1% ever regret it. However, the other argument that you could throw out there is the fact that even though, yes, this is a huge decision, yes, this is something that would absolutely you know, change a child's life without, without reversing, it is still nonetheless also equally true that you can't reverse you know growing up and if you're growing up you know you can argue all you want about oh well in a perfect world there wouldn't be a gender or whatever but truth is the world is gendered and growing up in those one sex or another will change everything and so you're at so the argument would be that you're asking children to not take a, a decision that they have a very, very low chance of ever actually regretting, uh, to then live for five, ten years, you know, in a in a state that they're going to be unhappy with, and that they will regret on some level. That's the counter argument. Yeah, and I think you've nailed it, George. I think it, you've nailed the crux of the of, of the problem here, and it is a problem, and it's a utilitarian problem fundamentally for for states and governments, even for liberal governments. That it's the question of you know how much good can I do before I start doing bad, before the the bad outweighs the good. 
Um, and is it justified ever, you know, to say I make a hundred people's lives easier if I lose one, you know, because then the, the, the other thing that I'm thinking is, well, you know, being, being a minor is difficult anyway. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, it wasn't easy for me. I'm not sure if it was easy for you. I think being, being a teenager is just awkward and difficult and you're not respected fully by society. You're treated as a girl or a boy. And, and in a way there is a reason for that. You know, you're not an adult yet. You're not, you don't have your full faculties. You don't have the capacity to reason completely. And, and you should be shielded from it too. You know, enjoy your youthful years because soon it will all just be struggling to pay the rent at the end of the month. So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that, youth, we take time with youth to prepare them for the world and to shield them from the world. And, you know, I'm not sure that the argument that, oh, you know, you're 16 and now in, you know, in you, you're convinced that you, you need to go through gender reassignment surgery. Okay, that's fine. But you cannot possibly wait two years because life is agony. Well, I would throw caution to the wind there because life will most likely be agony anyway. Uh, until you become an adult and you're well into your mid-twenties, life is, you know, difficult until you've got a bit of uh, money in your pocket and you've got a job and you you understand yourself and you've gone through maturity. Um, and so I'm not necessarily sure it's a bad idea. And I, and I think, you know, if you were able to wait until you were 18 and you're still convinced this is the right decision for you, then for me, th- at that point, actually, your argument carries even more weight. And perhaps you should do it because... You know, you've you've let this digest and you've taken time and you've considered the ramifications. And, you know, ultimately it becomes a question about not only about parenting, but but also about the state's uh, duty and attitude towards children. Um, mm-hmm. And at what point do we do we permit things uh, or do we permit people to take their own decisions, which society has universally sort of agreed is somewhere between 16 to 18 or 21, depending on which country. Yes. But anyway, around there. And I think ultimately this has become a, another sort of dig at that, you know, is did do we have the ages right? Because it's a very different question to an 18-year-old wanting gender reassignment surgery to a 15-year-old. And, mm-hmm. and it implies a different reaction from the state. Personally, George, I'm, I'm, I think I lean a bit more towards the the argument that the state should be protecting uh, teenagers and, and minors, even from themselves. I think ultimately that will do more good yeah. than harm. But I do yeah. also understand, you know, your argument that very few people regress it and that you have to be trans to understand deeply what this means, uh, you know, and that perhaps I'm not the best judge of these things. But ultimately, even if I get it wrong, I still think, just wait until you're 18, right? It, it, it doesn't sound that bad because you, you also get another bunch of rights at 18. You can vote, you can drink, you can drive, you can do a bunch of other stuff. So it gets better. Yeah. And uh, But with that, George, I think uh, unless there's any last thoughts from you or anything that I uh, may have provoked or missed, 
I if, think you, if you think this is a good place to call it, then let's call it. I think this is a good place to call it. I think we've done a great job of uh, of discussing as much as we can within within the limited time that we have. Uh, some uh, some contentious issues uh, surrounding LGBT topics today in the 21st century, and following uh, the 50th anniversary of Pride. Um, but I wanted to thank you, George, for another amazing episode. And yeah, if we got anything wrong. If there's any stats that are uh, completely outdated and if you completely disagree with something we said, that's fine. Drop us a comment below, let us know, and maybe we'll feature your comment on the next episode. But for now, this is your co-host, Thomas Brancato, signing off. And this is your co-host, George Shaft, also saying, please sign off. (laughs) And that wraps up this week's Cynical Talk episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends. If you haven't, let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube and more. You can find us over at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is your co-host, Thomas Boncaso, and I hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of Cynical Talk. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay cynical.